as we're working through the Gospel of Luke, we're at a point where Luke turns and switches his focus to the cross, and so uh, we're going to be pausing in in one sense this morning and uh, looking at all that leads up to uh, the crucifixion. So uh, before we do that this morning, I'm going to read Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wines and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who, was, or one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Father, as we consider the climax of all creation, as your Son dies on a cross bearing the sins of men and women, dying under your wrath in their place, Father, I pray that you enlarge our hearts this morning, that you change our lives in light of meditating on the cross of Christ. Father, I pray for those who've never received Christ, the crucified Savior who raised from the dead, that they they might do that today. Lord, I pray that you would work for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, this morning's going to be a little different than uh, we normally do, where we just take the next text. And part of the reason for that is I think there's a potential that we miss where we are in Luke, that we miss the gravity of what we are going to read in chapters 22 and 23, where we get to see all the details that led up to the death of Christ. And then we get to look at the death of Christ Himself. We miss sometimes, I think, the grand narrative. The beauty of God's plan and His providence. We miss the height of the victory that's being won on that cross. So this morning's going to be an introduction to the cross. What has God already said? Where are we at within the history of the world? The last couple years, I began uh, wa- actually watching movies. I'd like to say re- reading the books, but I d- haven't read the books. I've watched the movies. And I'm reluctant to say this because some of you might think less of me, but I would challenge you as a Christian who understands the grand narrative, we can look at stories and see why good stories are good stories. There is no really good story that doesn't match the narrative of what God has done for us in Christ. So, now, get ready for the stones. A year ago, I watched through the Harry Potter series. And I have to admit, through the first movie, the fundamentalist in me, was continually asking the question, is this not just simply celebrating witchcraft? It's all about witchcraft, seems like. There's good wizards and there's bad wizards. And the church member who was saying, yeah, but you gotta, you gotta get into the story. Sooner or later, what happens is you quit thinking about witchcraft and you're see the evil, and you see the good, and you see the struggle. And the thing that struck me in these movies is the evil is so evil. And Voldemort, the one who represents what we would think of as Satan, is so hideous. And those who follow him are death eaters. And throughout the series, you so want good to triumph over evil. 
You don't want Voldemort to have sway over the souls of the people. And so you're waiting for the victory and you're longing for the victory. I remember in my own personal fight of sin, just continually telling myself, when you sin, you're lining yourself up with evil, with Satan. It felt more grotesque. It's not just sin. Because that's how we talk about, oh, we're all sinners. Yeah, but are you in line with Voldemort? See, that hits different because in watching it, you understand the narrative. And you feel the heinousness of your sin. And in one sense, this morning, I want you to feel the narrative. Because if you don't see the glory of the cross, if you don't understand the narrative, if you don't look at the world and just do this this week, just you don't have to try too hard. This is a dark and evil place we live. In fact, if we could enter into the most holy family in this church, whoever that family might be, and you got to enter in behind those walls and listen to conversations, and if you could see into hearts, you're going to say, man, even the best Christian families have darkness that lingers. We turn on the TV, we see the brokenness, we see the effects of sin, we see the effects of evil because we're in a battle with evil. It's not flesh and blood that we struggle against, it's principalities and powers of darkness that are at work in this world. And when we get to the Gospels, everything in Luke has been an introduction up to this point. It's all pointing to the cross. The birth of Christ is all about the cross, and yet it doesn't start in the Gospels. And so we're going to consider the pinnacle event in all creation, and that is when God's own Son died on the cross because it's at the cross. I'll never forget when John Piper, I heard John Piper say this. The pinnacle of God's glory is seen with the Son of Man hanging on the cross, dying for sinners. And I just wanted to say, are you sure? Isn't it when we enter the new heavens and new earth and we can forget about the sin and we can forget about the bad stuff? Is Christ shine the brightest on the cross? It's just kind of the, the question in my mind. The blood, the most wicked sin ever committed, that's the pinnacle of 
God's glory. And yet it's at the cross. God has always had all of his glorious attributes, but it's when Jesus Christ is on the cross, those attributes seem to explode in brightness and glory. Every one of them somehow shines brighter when Christ is on the cross. God's justice and His holiness and His wrath. What would bring about God's only Son dying? One answer to that question is the holiness of God, the wrath of God. That event, which is the sin of all sins committed, killing God's only son, and yet the father kills him. And you say, whoa. That must be a holy God that if in order to forgive you and to forgive me, Christ had to die. And His mercy and His grace and His love at the, in the very same event, it seems like God's justice and grace should be opposites, but both of them beam forth. Our God, the terrifying reality of our God, and yet the comforting reality that He's a loving Father is all seen at this cross. Do you realize that without the cross, all of us, the whole human race that's ever lived would be dead in their trespasses and sins without hope in the world. These great stories, Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, the evil would just reign forever. No hope. Without hope. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had to live your life knowing that at the end of it is the fearful expectation of judgment before a holy God. Pain eternally for your sins. Remember when we were talking about what hell is? It's relational separation. The greatest being never been, never to even be compared to anyone or anything, God himself, the creator, being separated from every good blessing of being in his presence. Relational separation. You're left out of the party of all goodness, of all acceptance and being a part of a family and having an identity in that family. But it's not just relational separation. A lot of non-believers would say, I can do without that. I'm doing just fine without a relationship with God. 
Yeah, the only reason why they say that is because of God's common grace. Right now, they're experiencing his creational blessing. They get to see the sunrise. They get to have families. They get to experience love. They get to breathe in fresh air. They get to stand on solid surfaces and sit in chairs and lay on beds. But in hell, a person is separated from the creational goodness of God. It's called outer darkness. You don't get to see anything. It's called a bottomless pit. You don't even get the privilege to grab on and feel the security of a rail. Imagine life on this earth without hope and without God. You start to see the cross come to the center, don't you? Without the cross, there is no hope for you and no hope for me. And so we're going to look at and try to understand what the words of like the Apostle Paul, for example. Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I got one boast. It's in the cross of Christ. And when I boast in the cross of Christ, I'm crucified to this world. This world I know will not satisfy me. I've been crucified to it. I'm dead to it because I'm alive and I'm boasting in the cross of Christ. That's why he could say in 1 Corinthians 2.1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, what do you know? I, here's, a, here's all I want you to know. If you've got to sum it up, if I've got to put it in a sentence, it's Jesus Christ and it's him crucified. When Peter starts preaching in Acts, what does he say? Dave read part of this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know. He could have said, now let's think about all those wonderful things he did. But he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus whom you crucified. In the Gospel of Luke, we look at the details of the actual event. You read Acts, 
and you get to see the preaching of the cross of Christ and how the church is birthed out from it. And in the epistles, you get to see the theology, the unpacking of all that took place in the cross of Christ. But we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at the foreshadowing, the true introduction, not just Luke, the full introduction of the cross of Christ. And as you can see in your notes, we're just going to go very quickly. The first thing to see is the foreshadowing of the cross of Christ is seen from before the world begins. Before creation. How do we know this? Revelation 13.8. Who's going to worship the beast? All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. There's the book. Before creation began. And the book talks about a slaughtered lamb. If you're wondering of the centrality of the cross, you might ask yourself, what's the title of the book before there was creation? And you'll see that the cross of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought. That God says, uh-oh, what happened with creation? This was the plan before the world began. We can see it maybe a little less clearly, but certainly see it in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. How can God choose you to be holy and blameless before him? He only can do that as if he chooses you in Jesus Christ because he was the only one who was holy and blameless. So the foreshadowing of the cross is seen from before the world begins. The foreshadowing of the cross is seen throughout the entire Old Testament. You could say, what's the whole Old Testament about? It's an introduction to the cross of Jesus Christ where God reveals himself in all glory and splendor. Some of these are much more obvious. Some of these we see being on this side of the cross. But right away in Genesis 2, in verse 17, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The possibility of death is on the table. Right away, at the very beginning, and if death comes into the world, 
it necessitates a cross. And then we know that marriage is all about the gospel. Paul teaches us that. In Genesis 2.21, we see the first marriage. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. So the first way, the first man got a wife is God put the man to sleep in some sort of way opened up his side, and out of his side makes a bride for the man. And in the marriage, as we see a picture of our being united to Christ, and how are we united to Christ? But we're united to Christ through his death on our behalf. And then the obvious one that I'm sure you're aware of by now, Genesis 3.15, we have the curses, right? I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The devil's going to get a mortal head wound. The devil is going to strike and hurt the seed of the woman, but not in a lethal way. And so, as darkness sets in in Genesis 3, if it was portrayed in a movie, everything perfect, a union with God, everything's right in the world, and the moment sin enters the world, Adam says, kill my wife, because he said, she's the one that gave me the fruit. God said, whoever eats is going to die. Right away, the husband says, kill my wife. She, be, she blames the serpent. And darkness and death sets in in this world. And yet, a child will be born of a woman who will crush the deceiver, the serpent's head. And so there's some hope. And then we see this, Genesis 3.20. We get to see the sacrificial clothing. We read at the end of Genesis 3, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is only after they already made garments for themselves to cover their shame and their nakedness for sin with leaves and God saying, that won't work. I'm going to make you skins they're going to be from animals, which means the first blood is going to be shed. Which is a pointer that the way your shame and your sin is going to be covered is through sacrifice. And we see this right away in Genesis 4 when God receives Abel's 
sacrifice, and he rejects Cain's sacrifice. Why does Abel need to make an offering or a sacrifice to God? Because sin has entered the world. How is man going to be made right with God in a sacrificial system of sorts seems to be there right away after uh, Adam and Eve sin. Then we have the ark. The ark is the boat that bore the wrath of the waves and the rain from the flood and saved Noah and his family. Those who entered into the ark as God's judgment came upon the whole world, his wrath was poured out, were saved within the ark. I was reading a quote from D.L. Moody about a time uh, when he was giving a talk on a Sunday night and people were having a bunch of questions and uh, he was talking to a guy that was kind of skeptical but kind of hanging around and then he started to see tears in his eyes and he said, my friend, what is your difficulty? So the evangelist uh, So the evangelist says, uh, my friend, what is your difficulty? Well, he said, Mr. Moody, the fact is I cannot tell. I said to him, do you believe you're a sinner? He said, yes, I know that. I said, Christ is able to save you. And I used one illustration after another, but he did not see it. At last, I used the ark. And I said, was it Noah's feelings that saved him? Was it Noah's righteousness that saved him? Or was it the ark that saved him? Mr. Moody, he said, I see it. He got up and shook his hand, shook hands with me and said, good night. I have to go. I have to go away in the train tonight. But I was determined to be saved before I went. I see it now. I confess. Uh, Moody says, I confess it seemed almost too sudden for me. And I was almost afraid it could not live this new salvation he's talking about. A few days after, he came and touched me on the shoulder and said, do you know me? I said, I know your face, but I don't remember where I've seen you. He said, do you not remember the illustration of the ark? I said, yes. He said, it has been all light ever since. I understand it now. Christ is the ark. He saves me. I must get inside of him. When I went to Manchester again, I talked to the young friends there and found he was the brightest among them all. And so even within the ark, it's a picture of the cross of Christ. You can't crawl into Christ and be saved if Christ didn't bear God's wrath for you on that cross. I didn't have time to run this one by Scott, so hopefully I'm right on this one. 
He's the Melchizedek expert. But the gift in Genesis 14, 18 that Melchizedek brought, he's the king of Salem, he's the high priest of God, was bread and wine. And so the king priest gives gifts of bread and wine, and we're going to see Christ institute the Lord's Supper here in the next couple weeks. Adam ate from the fruit of the vine, and death came into the world. But the second Adam comes, not sinful like the first Adam, dies in your place and offers a meal to all his people. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So when we take communion together, we get to drink of the fruit of the vine and eat in celebration that all good, all the blessings of the new covenant is surely yours. He reversed the curse so that when we get to share this meal, it's pointing to our salvation in Christ. And then when God instituted circumcision with Abraham, circumcision is a sign of two main things. The positive side is you're cut off as a people holy to God. The negative side of the picture is if you break any part of the covenant, you will be cut up like the process of circumcision. And so Jesus Christ, when he hung on that cross, was the curse for you because we broke the covenant. We're sinners. He bore the curse. He was cut up. He was marred beyond all semblance. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that because the wrath of God is really upon him. And for all eternity, he's had perfect fellowship with the Father relationally. But right now, in that moment, he is forsaken of the Father, bearing our wrath in our place, cut off. So that Jesus can say to you and to I, I will never leave you or forsake you. You realize the worst day of your life, if you were to be tortured by ISIS, I don't know, imagine the worst day of your life. This will be true for you. You will never be forsaken. Christ was forsaken so you wouldn't be. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. Christ is our circumcision. Man, I got to roll here. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac 
as he raises the knife and he's going to slaughter his own son. God says in verse 12 of Genesis 22, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up his eyes, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And, the, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And we read that story and we go, oh, that would have been terrible if a father would have actually had to slay a son. And oh, good, there's a ram in the thicket. The thing we don't realize is that ram is Christ. That ram is Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Everyone comes on the Passover with their unblemished, Lamb. And in 30 AD, God showed up at the Passover with his lamb. He's going to provide. When that lamb is slaughtered, this whole thing is done. All the blood, through all the years, all the sacrifices, when God brings his lamb, it is finished. And we see the Passover lamb in the Exodus when God saves his people out of Egypt and they put the blood over the door. And when God sees the blood, he relents from destroying the people. Now, were the Israelites better than the Egyptians? Were they more moral? No. They would be slaughtered too if blood wasn't covering them. And so the Passover, which God instituted as a feast, one of the three feasts in Israel that was celebrated every year where they would slaughter a Passover lamb and then feast for seven days with unleavened bread was to remember this day, which obviously points to Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb and then God provides bread for them from heaven nourishment from heaven and Jesus says that if you eat my flesh and drink my blood you can follow me you can you can be one of mine and everyone was so offended and disgusted by this statement. And what he's saying is, is when I'm hanging on that cross, naked, beaten beyond semblance, mocked by the crowds, spit on, 
If you don't look at that and say, that's my hope, that's my nourishment right there. The drink of my life, the food of my life is happening on that cross. The person that doesn't receive Christ's cross and say, that's my Christ. Not just his good teaching, not just his miracles, but say, no, my Lord, the pinnacle event of all of history is when he was on the cross dying in my place. And then we have the whole Levitical system, right? My girls, as they're doing their Bible reading, they get to Leviticus and always are saying, so tell me again why this is important. And I say, are you frustrated? Are you annoyed? Why? It's just, huh? And I'm like, that's the point. That ended when the great high priest became the lamb. All that bloodshed. Can you imagine the blood flowing out of the temple? Did you know that when they prepared the Passover lamb, they were to bring a lamb into their home four days before they sacrificed it, almost as like a pet? You have a lamb living in your home with you, and then you violently, on that white fur, slit the throat of the lamb. And the kids would be broken. Ella was just shot a doe here a couple weeks ago, and it ended up paralyzing the back part of the legs, and it wasn't the type of kill we go for as hunters. And this happens sometimes. And she started bawling. And we had to go and kill the doe as the doe is crying out. All of the, the sacrificial system ended when Christ came and fulfilled it all. And then within that, you have the scapegoat where Aaron was to put his hands lay both hands on the head of a live goat, confess the sins of the people uh, over top of it, and send him outside of the city gates into the wilderness to bear the sins, to die outside the city gates. And yet that was a detailed foreshadowing of how Christ would have to carry the sins of the people. And then you have the people grumbling in the wilderness and God sends fiery serpents to bite them and they're dying. And is there any hope? Is there any hope? Darkness has come upon this land in that we're all dying. We're all sick. And God tells Moses to make a serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And the very thing that the, the curse that's biting them is lifted up on the pole. And anyone who looks at the pole will be healed. And we know John in John 3 tells us that that's obviously about Christ. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's how Charles Spurgeon got saved. Look. That's all you got to do. Look to him. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you see the curse lifted up? Christ bearing your sins. It's not your feelings that save you. Do you see him? Do you see your savior? Is he your hope? Have you looked to him? And then we have the Psalm 22, which is just an incredible prophetic psalm, which is almost a thousand years before Christ and 700 years before crucifixion is ever invented. And the opening line of that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what Jesus cried out on the cross. And essentially he's saying, go read Psalm 22. It's happening to me now. And we don't have time to read it all. But he says in there, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan, they surround me. They open wide their mouths like ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are, bones are out of joint. My heart is like, has melted like wax. It is melted in my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. And uh, verse 16 says, The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The details of the crucifixion were in Psalm 22. Even the words they mock him with at the beginning of the psalm. You got to look at that. And then Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, which is you might be familiar with. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of many sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We Yet we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And it goes on. And the beginning, or in 52.13, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Oh, wow, he's going to be great. This servant is going to be great. And many were astonished at you as his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond the children of mankind. You see what I mean? We just pick up Luke and then we go into the next chapter. And okay, here's the cross. We miss, We got to see you got to lean in to what you're reading. It's the pinnacle of everything good in your life 
is bound up in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that in this dark world, we're still in this story. The main event has happened, but darkness still looms. People are held fast in their unbelief. And Satan has darkened their mind. And it is a spiritual battle. You don't just go to work with people. You just don't interact with people. You interact with eternal souls that'll live forever in the midst of a real story. I hate even using the word story. It has the connotation in our culture as though it's not true. Where real spiritual warfare is being had and there's real spiritual weapons. And the question is, are you using them? What is our light beam to brighten up the darkness? How do we slay evil? Is it not the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ? Is that not our weapon? Have we taken it for granted? Have we thought we live in a place that doesn't really exist? We're not in a grand story. We're not in a battle between good and evil and we just go to work and we're just, got, we got Thanksgiving this week and Christmas coming up. And have you been fooled that that's all life is? Or have you seen and do you know that in Christ, because he went to the cross in your place, and when you trusted in him, he gave you spiritual life. He brought you a person who is dead in their trespasses and sins alive. You've been filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Your eyes are open to the Bible so that you read it and you go, whoa, there's hope here. This is what life is about. Now that I know the crucified Christ, this world is crucified to me. And in Zechariah, we have the shepherd that is, will be struck and the sheep will be scattered and we've only touched some of the Old Testament allusions to the cross of Jesus Christ. But listen to me. That's everything before the cross is looking up to the cross. Everything after the cross is looking back to the cross. All the acts is preaching the cross. All the epistles is unpacking the cross. And then once you get in the new heavens and new earth and revelation and Jesus is talked about revelation 21, nine, then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me. Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. It's not doesn't say the son. It says the lamb. And then in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in this city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the lamb. 
You see, you have the light beam even now. You have the lamp to fight the darkness, and it's the preaching of the cross of Christ. Every time we take communion, we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. We're the people of the cross that preach the cross. In Revelation 22.1, I don't want to be redundant, but I just got to show you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You want to see Jesus talked about at the end of all of it? It's looking back as the perfect Son of God bearing the sins of man on the cross, dying under the wrath of God in their place. And that's what we're looking at next week. We're looking at the beginning of the climax of history in the Gospel of Luke. And the question, just one question, is the cross of Christ the central theme of my life? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that your fuel? Is that how you live your life? Paul had a tough life to live. But that's how he lived it. Is the cross of Christ central? The central theme in your life? That's the question. Father, thank you. We would have no hope. We would be lost in this world with no hope and without you if it was not for your plan that began before the world began. Father, forgive us if we've treated the cross as elementary things that we move past and then we get on to other things. Father, humble us at the cross. When we remember the cross, we see ourselves as sinners. All of our boasting goes away. Father, we have need of humility. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring front and center in our minds the glorious redemption we have in Christ. Father, I thank you that your love and your mercy and your holiness and your righteousness live sweetly together in the cross of Christ. Father, let us fight the battle. The new heavens and the new earth are not here yet. Father, let us wage war. Let us preach the truth. Our neighbors that are broken, Father, who's going to bring them the gospel? Who's going to show them the love of Christ? Who's going to forgive the coworker everyone else is done with that they might have witness to them? Father, I pray that you would let us see the reality of the narrative in which we live in. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.